Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited with our guest today. I mean, it's really a unique story, very inspiring. I mean, talking about building something, bootstrapping it, and then doing a massive Series B once, you know, product market fit is flying off the shelves. So I think that you're all going to very much enjoy this, and I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today, Oshin O'Connor. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So Oshin, so born and raised there in Los Angeles. So how was life growing up in a family of creative people? Yeah. So both my parents were immigrants from Ireland and they were both architects. And so, yeah, I w it was definitely from an early age was taught about uh, design thinking and building and creating things. And obviously both uh, architects here, I mean, you were thinking about going into, into arts, you know, with a combination of economics. And then all of a sudden here you are self-teaching yourself programming. So, so how, how did you come across computers and perhaps, you know, the idea of, of, of doing development. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I went to originally went to school for art and then architecture and then into economics. And, you know, I always had that desire to build and create things in my life. Um, and what I realized that, you know, going um, in school that the modern builders would be programmers in our times and entrepreneurs. And so that's kind of what was the natural evolution. Got it. And in your case, I mean, you did a little bit of corporate America, working on places like Deloitte, you know, just like uh, checking it out for a few years. And but then basically, you know, you went at it as an entrepreneur and your first rodeo was basically touching the crowdfunding space. I mean, what were you guys doing there? I graduated in 2008 uh, during the economic uh, downturn. And, uh, you know, I, I promised my parents as immigrants' parents, I promised them I'd go and get a real job. So at a corporation <laughs> and I got right in there and I was like, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> I got to get out of this as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was looking at what were the interesting areas. Um, and I had been involved with an organization called Global Brigades in college um, that did medical relief and microfinancing in Central America. And I was just really impassioned how technology could start to help these communities and individuals around the world. Um, and this, this was early days in like 2008. And so then the first kind of entrepreneurial endeavor I did was a company called Empower.org that would help crowdfunding for these communities and these projects. And then whatever happened with, with Empower.org? You know, it was one of those funny things. It was like the right idea 
the right space, but the wrong market in the sense that, uh, you know, all the crowdfunding platforms at that time started to take off, except, you know, the ones in the nonprofit space, because nonprofits are slow. <laughs> and so I definitely learned you can be in the right space, but like tangentially, and you need to move over and figure out where the, the bigger opportunity is. Got it. So, so after, so after this, you know, essentially you, you know, were like wondering what was going to be next. Uh, and you did a, a couple of things, you know, here and there, but but mainly what you did is you landed into is to starting your web development, you know, kind of like a gig so that you could support, you know, what will be next. So so why why did you end up, you know, starting a web development firm and how did you land into the world of e-commerce? About seven and a half years ago, um, you know, I was fully broke. I was turning 30 years old and I was like, I got to get a job at some point. This is not working out. Maybe being an entrepreneur is just not for me. <laughs> so it was a very humbling point in my life. And I, you know, I did a, a retrospective of, you know, what I was good at, what I wasn't. And I realized like I was good at kind of building and starting products, but I wasn't great at, you know, taking something from 90% to 100%. And so that was one big lesson. And from that, it led me to start to work with my current co-founder, Mike Flynn. The other big lesson I had is like you can have, you know, the right product, the right team, but if you don't have the right market, nothing else matters, right? Um, and so at that point, we went through a period of just talking to all the smartest people that we could get a hold of. You know, we hit them on uh, LinkedIn, Claria FM, just cold call them, just to understand like what were smart, you know, passionate people thinking about at that time of interest and problem sets, and that led us to commerce, and we realized that commerce was this area that was kind of like underfunded, uh, inadequate software, really old school. And it was going to become a huge market 10, 20 years out. Um, and it, was just, it felt like that was the great place to build and explore ideas. Um, and so that led to us, you know, because we had no money, we had to start generating money from day one. So we started a web development agency. Um, and but we then also started to build out SaaS products. So every month we would build out a new SaaS product in commerce, and then we try to market and sell it. Right. And, you know, we thought ourselves as almost like, a, you know, Texas oil miners back in the day or something, you know, just trying to explore interesting areas and see where the opportunities are and the rich uh, problem sets. And how did you meet your co-founder? How do you guys come across each other? Yeah, we actually met at a barbecue. Uh, okay. So it was in Los Angeles, and uh, I was having a barbecue. He was a friend of a friend, and at the time there wasn't a big uh, tech startup community in Los Angeles, and so we were both trying to do uh, software products, and so we were commiserating together of like how our startups were not working, and so we became good friends on that side, and then we realized um, we really balanced each other's out from a temperament perspective. And I know that the first days, you know, when, when doing the web development firm, I mean, it was, it was tough. Uh, I know that your co-founder also, you know, any day was like packing up the bags and going and living with the parents and, and, and perhaps looking at a job. But, but, you know, in the end, you know, you guys, you know, kept launching, you know, new stuff. And on the sixth time that you threw something out there, it seemed that it seems that that was something that, you know, would stick and would end up becoming recharged. So, so tell us about that. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, that was probably the the most painful period of my life. I think they always say you have to hit rock bottom before you come back up. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there was a period early on where we both were running out of money and we literally had like two months of runway um, just to pay for rent, you know, and I think my co-founder was thinking about becoming an Uber driver as a software engineer <laughs> just to like get by. And, 
every, you know, it was a period where he, I could tell how well the startup was going based on how many bags he had packed uh, to move back to, from Los Angeles to San Francisco to live with his parents. Uh, so <laughs> at a certain point, the bags were getting unpacked and the books were being put back on the bookshelf, which was a good things, a sign that things were getting better. Um, but yeah, in that period, you know, we launched six different products and the products before generate some cash. Um, but with uh, recharge and kind of connecting with the idea of uh, subscription payments for commerce, it just it was like hitting uh, lightning, right? It just like right away it worked. It just you just knew it was like the big thing and like it was going to work. And at that point, we kind of put the other products on autopilot, and we actually ended up selling those other products. Uh, and that became kind of like our seed money. I think we sold them for like 250k, and that kind of helped funded uh, recharge early on. That's amazing. So, so about recharge. So, just so that the people listening, you know, get it, what ended up becoming the business model? Yeah, totally. So, we launched the product six and a half years ago. It's basically a subscription management platform for e-commerce companies that want to sell physical products on subscription. So, we kind of give people the tools to one, launch their subscription program, two, to kind of customize it based on their business's needs, and then we give them a series of tool sets to help them grow their uh, subscriptions. In that period of you know the last six and a half years, for about at least over five years of that, we were completely self-funded, so we were bootstrapped. And every year, you know, as a bootstrap company, we were doubling and tripling in size. Yeah, because I guess in in bootstrapping, I mean, what you guys have done is amazing, you know. But the problem with bootstrapping too is that one step in the wrong direction could be lethal, no? And you don't have that oxygen. So uh... yeah, totally. You know, and I think like. There's two sides of the coin here. You know, as an art major, there was always there's always a famous saying that um, there's no art without constraints. And I think bootstrapping and not having funding oftentimes cre creates this constraint in the business and, and in your mindset that forces you to really think uh, objectively about the opportunity and what you should be building and creating into the world. Um, but at the same time, the other side of it is like you got to be batting 100%. Like there is no messing up. Um, and so through those like, you know, first five plus years of the business, we were batting 100% in the sense like every decision was perfect uh, because we just didn't have that leeway in the business to, to mess things up. So when thinking about raising money, um, how did you guys think about that? Because obviously your situation was different. I mean, typically at a Series A, companies are, you know, at about 1 million or so in revenue, validation, clear validation of product market fit. But in this case, you guys were off the roof, which could be, you know, potentially labeled more as a Series B you know, type of um, type of type of company from an expectation perspective on the investor side. So, so how was the fundraising journey for you guys? How did you go about that? Yeah, totally. You know, and I, I think we're like overall like a very both my co-founder and I are very humble individuals, and we know what we don't know. And so we had never done fundraising, and we went out and we just talked to just like when we started the business, we went out and talked to all the smartest people we can get a hold of to learn. You know, the dynamics of fundraising, what makes sense, what doesn't. Um, I think we were very lucky in the pers in the perspective that we were later in the stage in the journey. So when we did do fundraising, one, um, we were really able to create the terms that we wanted, right? And we were able to own a majority of the company um, in the process. Also, the other thing I feel very lucky about is that the culture of the team and the organization was really created without the pressures of outside investors or influences. We really built those in those early days, and I think that's so um, goes forward. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, we've raised total 277 million uh, to date. So we went from zero 
to not, not raising money for a long time to 277. So. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, so I guess the first round, obviously, you know, as you were saying, uh, it was triggered by being able to have more oxygen and, and not being on, on a thin line uh, walking. But, but, you know, for example, like going from 50, which was your Series A, to 270, I mean, how were you thinking about then, you know, those next day tranches of money uh, in terms of like why you wanted, you know, to take more money on? Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, when we did the first round, I think the first round is always the hardest because it's like this psychological thing of not done it before, you know, not having the right structure in place. And then I think we just saw that like that was uh, January of last year that we did that. And then the business just accelerated more. Right. And we realized that the capital gave us the ability to be more aggressive um, and really just drive a better product for our customers and experience and also a better uh, infrastructure for the overall business to grow, you know? And then I think with our most recent round of fundraising is like, again, I think, you know, commerce has turned out to be a way bigger category than everyone thought. And you know, it's funny when we first talked to investors, everyone thought e-commerce uh, e wasn't a big category. And everyone would always ask me about, uh, you know, TAM total market opportunity. And I'm like, I always had a, a weird look. I didn't know how to answer them because I was like, people buy stuff all day long. Why are you asking me how big that opportunity is? <laughs> and like, I think now everyone realizes how big the opportunity is and like right. the funding is now coming into it because of real estate. Yeah. No, no, I hear you. I hear you. And and I'm sure that COVID too has probably accelerated things for you guys. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it, it really accelerated the business uh, growth. We were already going at a very fast clip. But I think it changed the mindset of uh, the consumers, right? Is that consumers now are being educated more of like how buying stuff online or in a digital form, uh, they have better selection, right? And they can have this like richer experience between them and the end producer. And then I think from the, uh, the merchant side of things is that they are starting off now thinking, how do I have a, a direct relationship with the consumer, you know? Um, and I think one thing that made this poignant to me during COVID um, is that in the you know two months after the, the pandemic started, there was a local bakery that opened up uh, down the street from my house, and um, you know probably the worst time ever to start a bakery. And when I went to to their website, I realized that they were using Recharge, and what they were doing is they would have a fresh uh, bread delivery every Saturday, so they would do a subscription payment, and people would basically manage their ongoing bread delivery on a Saturday morning delivered to their house while they were, you know, settled in the pandemic. And, you know, I think what was interesting is like traditionally probably a bakery starting would never have a digital presence. Um, but COVID really changed the mindset where they're like, oh, wow, we have to have this relationship wherever the consumer is, not just if they walk into our bakery. And I think that's a fundamental change that we're seeing in commerce right now. Really cool. And now as we're thinking about, you know, customers and and expanding and ramping up, you know, one thing that was very unique, you know, on the approach that you guys took is that instead of having, you know, sales and, and marketing people, you really relied on the product itself to really do the talking. So it took you like four years to bring in anyone on the marketing or sales side. So so tell us about this 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 approach because it's is is quite unique. You know, well, first is we had no money, right? So we were bootstrapped. So we had to be very cognitive of how we spent money, how do we get growth. And, you know, I think when we look, we thought about the, the product and the business holistically, we didn't just think about product market fit, you know, like what's the product that people want, 
but we also thought about product distribution fit, right? We really thought like, hey, how does this product fit into the distribution channels that we have in front of ourselves, right? And so when we first started off, we, we started off on the Shopify app market, right? And so everything we built was around how does this product capitalize on the Shopify app market, right? How does it, you know, someone can go to recharge, install it, and then right away go live, right? As quick as possible. And I think that those product investments really accelerated our go-to-market more than anything that we could have done on a sales and marketing perspective at the time, you know? And then after that, we started to build out our whole APIs and our developer tools. And that as well started to, from a product perspective, started to push growth. Um, and I think, you know, w- we then layered on marketing and sales and marketing and sales are amazing, but like they layer on to the underlying value of uh, the business and what we offer. So so in your case, you know, it was uh, interesting too, like the way that that you also had the, the the people working remote at a very, very early stage. So I guess, you know, COVID didn't really impact much, you know, the FaceTime, you know, type of environment. So so how was, you know, like building this remote uh, culture uh, also where you have trust and meritocracy present? I mean, how, how do you define really meritocracy, you know, for the people that are listening and watching? Totally. So, yeah, well, you know, when we started the business, you know, seven and a half years ago, um, you know, starting with the development agency and then recharge um, a year after that, you know, we weren't able to afford, uh, you know, a lot of people in Los Angeles, right? You know, you're there, you're competing with Google and Apple and such not. So we had to go remote right from the beginning. Um, it also helped that both my co-founder and I didn't want to go into an office every day and be like, you know, have a certain set schedule. So that helped as well. And, you know, what I love about remote is that you just get one, the types of people you can have is way more rich, right? You have way more you know, diversity, you have way more, you know, selection of quality. Um, but also there's this fundamental uh, trust that gets built into it in the sense, and at least when people do it right, where you're hiring someone and you're not really ever looking over their shoulder. You're not like a traditional office, someone, you know, Jimmy would come into the office, he would sit down, you'd see he gets in at 8 a.m., he leaves at 6 p.m., right? And like, you know, I was in that office, you know, when I was at my first job and it always drove me crazy because you don't really know if the guy is actually working hard. You're just judging him based on his time in the office. And when you go remote, you don't know how many hours someone puts in. You don't know what hours they work. All you see is the byproduct of their work. Right. So you judge them on the results. And I think that's a very powerful thing. Right. Because it really it becomes an equalizer. So it really does become a meritocracy where the best people and ideas move to the top because you just see the results and then you just judge on that, right? Um, and you have that trust. But, you know, and it's also something great because the great people also aren't linear a lot of times in their work habits is like, you know, they might want to take an hour or two off in the middle of the day and go to the beach, right? And, you know, because they need to digest and have their subconscious think about, catch up to their conscious on a lot of things. And so... You know, I think it kind of the remote also allowed a great work-life balance for our team and kind of like creating what's the best way, style of work for them. Um, you know, so when, when COVID did hit, it was great. You know, it was helpful that we were remote. Um, that said, I think there's a lot of value to in-person. And I think we definitely missed the in-person um, attributes because when you're in-person, uh, you build a familiarity with somebody and you build trust, right? It's very hard to build trust in a pure digital um, manner. And so you need to kind of like mirror that remote with an in-person in my experience as well. In your case, I mean, imagine if you go to to sleep tonight 
and you wake up in a world five years later. I imagine tremendous news. And in that world, you know, the vision of recharge is fully realized. What does that world look like? I always find these questions funny because it's like I always think about myself as like an 18 year old talking to my career counselor. So, <laughs> Good you know, I think, you know, I, I think the, you know, my answer to my career counselors back then was like, here's the interesting problem sets and things I want to work on in my life. Yeah. Uh, what that tangibly is, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I think, you know, it's funny. It's like as human beings, oftentimes we connect our ego with like a, a tangible thing saying like, I want to be this when I grow up or this is my product. And we don't think about enough about what are the interesting problem sets that we're going after and then really be open to what solves those things. Um, so, you know, I think commerce is going through a fundamental shift. Um, you know, I think it is completely omni-channel. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. In a digital manner. I think that the merchants want to have a rich ongoing experience with the end consumers and the consumers also want to have that relationship, you know, and consumers are moving away from kind of box retailers or, you know, you know, Amazon style services and more want that one-to-one -one connection, uh, which, you know, it's funny. It's actually kind of going back to where it was probably for thousands of years of human beings, you know, the people that, you know, produce something we would buy directly and have that relationship. And, I think there's a fundamental human nature to belong and connect to things. Um, so I think, you know, subscriptions a lot of times is at the core of these relationships. You know, how do you have an ongoing consumption? And so I think when I think about recharge and where we're going, it's really how do we just build richer ways for merchants to have that relation, ongoing relationship with the consumer? You know, and where that goes, I don't know. But that's an interesting problem set that we're tackling. I hear you. And, and in terms of... Uh scope and size, you know, today of recharge so that the people listening get an idea on how big you guys are. Anything that you can share in terms of maybe like number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? I think we have over 15,000 merchants uh, processing billions of dollars a, a year. That's amazing. Imagine you're still on the career counseling, you know, uh, department, you know, like let, let's keep on that segment for just one second. So um, imagine I put you in a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time. And I'm able to put you right at that moment where you were struggling. You had that web development firm, you know, where, where you were just going month to month and, and hoping to make the rent. If you had the opportunity to go back in time right then and give your, yourself, that younger self, one piece of advice before launching a company, in this case, what would become Recharge, based on what you know now, what would that be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? <laughs> I think... At that time, going through so much um, challenge and kind of just being humbled by the world, <laughs> like failure, like at a, at a deep level, um, I think the what that pushed me to um, was to really be opinionated about what I'm creating, what I'm building, what I believe in, right? And like kind of take everything else with a grain of salt, you know, what anyone else says or advice and try to kind of like, you know, I think Elon Musk always talks about first principles, but really do that is like, think about fundamentally, what's the thing I'm tackling and then build upwards and be opinionated about that. Right. And not let other things sway me around. And I think earlier on in my career, and I see this with a lot of entrepreneurs is you try to do everything and you try to please everybody or you try to follow a certain playbook or hearing things. And the reality is like every situation is different. And 
you know, there's a certain like opinionation, contextual awareness that you need uh, to make the proper decision and no one else is going to tell you. Right. And so I think trust your gut, all of those things. And, and in terms of the world of e-commerce, uh, where do you think it's heading as a whole? E-commerce is, COVID has definitely accelerated e-commerce. I mean, as a category, I think it's just going to be all-encompassing from the perspective of the things that we buy and consume in our daily lives is e-commerce, right? It's commerce. It's all digital in manner or should be. Um, and so I think that's going to be a big transformation is how does the whole stack get digitized over the period? I think we're going, this is not just a U.S. trend. I think this is an international trend. So we see our merchants that want to sell in 20, 30, 40 countries. Um, and they're very global in their nature of their thought process. You know, so that those are big trends. I would say also we just see the modernization of the, the commerce stack is like for the longest time, the category was underinvested in, you know, and I think it was just underappreciated. You can see, um, you know, Bessemer has a great blog post on Shopify, their investment in Shopify. And they, in that blog post, they said like in their investment thesis, they thought Shopify would never be worth more than $700 million because <laughs> they didn't think the category was big enough. And so, you know, I think they, you know, Shopify now is worth $140 billion. So, you know, I think we're real, people are realizing how big the category is, but they haven't invested in that category for the last 10 years. And so now the investments have to come in to really bring up the, the category as a whole. And I think that's going to be a, a huge trend over the next 10 years too. Amazing. So, uh, Orshin, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to, to reach out and say hi? Yeah, totally. Uh, and probably just hit me up on LinkedIn. You know, I, I pretty much like do not look at emails and I don't look at uh, social media. <laughs> so <laughs> LinkedIn is probably the only place I actually do look because I have to like recruit and hire people. <laughs> I know, it's funny. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, Oshin, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Cool, awesome. Take care. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.